morning and welcome to Resistance TV. My name's Sean Bloor. I'm in the boss's chair for, for tonight, so I'll try not to let the power go to my head too much. Um, tonight, we're just going to have a kickback and relax and have a chat with you all. We've got some great people who join us every week, people who've been with us from the very beginning. And I'm sure you'd like to ask lots of questions of Chris um, and either possibly myself. So tonight's Wednesday, the 7th of April, it's seven o'clock. And I'd like to introduce our guest for this evening, Chris Williamson. How are you doing, Chris? I'm very well, thanks very much indeed. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> have you had a good weekend? Not too bad, not too bad, yeah. Uh, a, bit, a bit of gardening and uh, enjoying the, the weather. And then it started snowing. I mean, we had a blizzard yesterday. It was incredible. Um, wow, like, well. Cl climate change, I put it down to. That's Derby for you. Yeah. Mind but you, then we the sun, have a the, few flakes in Manchester. The sun, the sun soon came out, though, because the sun always shines on the righteous. <laughs> You've not told me you're a vegan for two minutes, Chris. No, no. <laughs> Without further ado, I've got a couple of questions that I want to start off with. And although I'm not going to be moderating in the chat this evening, our producer Gaz will be there and he'll be taking any questions from people who want to put anything in the comments. Ask us anything, anything you like. Um, it could be about politics. It could be about our plans for the future. You might want to ask us something personal about his political career, anything you like. Um, so I'm going to just kick us off with a couple of questions until people get warmed up um, and um, just say good evening to a few of our comrades who are already on the live chat. So hi to Jonathan, hi to Steph, hi to Kevin, hi to Mark. Um, welcome, James MC. I'm glad my one and only fan is on board this evening. It's great to see you. Um, so, Chris, first of all, um, can you tell us a little bit about your journey into politics? Oh, crikey. Well, I mean, I joined the Labour Party back in 1976 and was a very active uh, member of the, the party, really, from the get-go and campaigned in every single election from 1977 onwards. Uh, there was a county council elections that year. And so, yeah, I was very involved in the in the Labour Party, involved in the trade union movement, so active in the anti-Nazi League. I was very active in the animal rights movement, too. And uh, eventually I stood as a, as a councillor. I'd taken various positions as a shop steward, area organiser for uh, Unison, shop steward for uh, New the National Union of Public Employees before they merged with Cozy and uh, Nalgo. And um, and then uh, stood, well actually I'd stood a few times for the Labour Party in, in hopeless seats, but then eventually got elected to Derby City Council in 1991 and became chair of housing after a few years and uh, and from there deputy leader and then leader of the council and frankly i think you know to be honest with you being the leader of the council was it was the most enjoyable most rewarding political role i've ever had because if you like you're a big fish in a little pond but we were really able to make a difference on the ground uh, on behalf of local people and we were we were really i think i might would say this wouldn't i but i think we were pushing through some some really you know progressive policies i mean we were really trying to give form to municipal socialism back back then this was in the early 2000s when i was leader of the council and you know we devolved uh, powers and budgets to to local uh, people we brought in other agencies the police and the and the health service and other agencies as part of their consultation processes we we kind of like uh, combined them so that people could have an influence over other public sector organizations and um you know we provided a free uh, home care service we we were building some houses, not as many as I would have liked, but we managed to find a way of doing it, even though it was very, very difficult in, in those days. So 
that was uh, that, that was probably the most uh, rewarding and enjoyable time. And then I got a, a elected in 2010 as, a, as an MP uh, for Derby North, lost the seat very carelessly by just 41 votes in 2015 after the Greens stood against us in protest against the uh, the direction that the party had taken under Ed Miliband. They didn't want me to lose a seat. They wanted me to win. They was just doing it as a gesture, really. They said that it's safe to stand uh, the Green Party in Derby North because you're bound to get in, Chris. You're going to win by a landslide. And at the count, I remember in 2015, the Green Party candidate got a head in a hand saying, oh, no, this wasn't supposed to happen. We want Chris to win. And we lost by 41 votes. And then, uh, which was a real blow, obviously, but then, you know, Jeremy came onto the scene and uh, managed to get the sufficient number of nominations. And I got very involved in that campaign. And uh, and then we saw what happened with the, you know, the saboteurs in the Parliamentary Labour Party, which made me really determined that if we had an opportunity to to get back into, if I had an opportunity to get back into Parliament uh, alongside Jeremy, that I would do everything I could to democratise the party and make MPs properly accountable to the grassroots members. And frankly, if they'd ever, if the party had ever listened to its grassroots members right throughout its history, we wouldn't have made the number of mistakes that we did. Even Ed Miliband said that, that if we'd listened to the party a bit more when we were in government between 97 to 2010, we wouldn't have made the catastrophic errors that we did. So I was determined to do that and push that agenda, but we all know what happened. I mean, I eventually got targeted uh, by the anti-democrats inside the parliamentary. Like, well, I say eventually, it kind of happened more or less straight away. Uh, and they were very determined to, you know, uh, uh, stop me and stop the democratic reforms that were being pushed through. And of course, the Zionist lobby uh, was a convenient uh, bandwagon on which to jump. Uh, and because I'd obviously taken an anti-imperialist stance and support for the Palestinian people and actually defended people who had been falsely accused of anti-Semitism, ironically, many of them were Jewish. That was then used as a pretext to to kick me out. So that's a real potted history of my time from 1976 to the present day. Yeah, there's quite, I mean, there's quite a few different strands we could go off on there. Um, but for, before we do, I want to know who your heroes and villains are from the political scene. Well, obviously, uh, uh, Tony Benn. I mean, I used to talk about the Holy Trinity and, uh, and that was the Holy Trinity made up of uh, a trade unionist, a, a member of parliament and an iconic uh, local government leader. And for me, it was obviously Tony Benn in Parliament. It was Arthur Scargill as a leader of the NUM who, who uh, really stood by his members, knew what he was talking about. He was a kind of absolute epitome of what a trade union should be, in my opinion. And then from local government, there was, was a chap called David Bookbinder. People may remember him. He was seen as the most controversial leader in local government after the Tories under Thatcher had got rid of the Great London Council and uh, Ken Livingston, local authorities like uh, Lambeth uh, with the Ted Knight and obviously Liverpool with, with Derek Hatton and so on. And, um, and so then it was, um, you know, Bookie was the man that they, that they were going after. And, uh, you know, I learned a lot from David, really, in terms of his role as leader of the council. I was active in the county Labour Party at the time. I wasn't on the council. But Bookie, as we used to call him, used to always talk about make sure that you're not officered, make sure that, you know, we're there as councillors, you know, you're there to as you represent the party, represent the people that put you there. And I really, that kind of stayed with me, to be honest with you. He told a wonderful story about when Labour won back the council in 1981 after the catastrophe of 1977, where Labour got wiped out in whole swathes of local government. And Bucky, at that time, he retained his seat. But before that, he wasn't the leader. But when the, the leader had lost his seat in that election in 1977, 
the the Labour group on Derbyshire County Council uh, elected him as their leader. And, you know, he talks about when they got came back to power in 1981 because the chief executive was not happy about Bookie being the, the leader and Labour coming back to power. And he was conspiring to uh, try and uh, organise a sort of a palace coup, if you like, and it would never happened. And remember, first thing that, that Bucky did, he had a meeting with the chief executive and the chief executive, oh, I, must get you, I must get you an office sorted out, Councillor Buckbard. He said, yeah, don't worry, I'll take this one. You go find yourself a new office. So he sent that very clear signal about it was Labour and the councillors that were in charge. But then he brought all of the, the chief uh, officers and their uh, assistants together to a meeting. And he was a wonderful orator, was, was David. And he, he went through this long speech about local government and how... There'd always been a tradition of a, of a partnership between the officers and the elected members. And all the officers were in great trepidation about worrying about what was going to, to happen. And they were all, they were saying, looking around, nodding, nudging themselves, saying, oh, maybe this is not going to be so bad. And then his operation was to say, well, I'm here to tell you the partnership is over. We're here to govern and all of your delegated powers will be taken away. And so Every, every decision had to go through either to full council or to the policy committee, as it was in those days. And then for, for, for minor decisions, it was a bit bureaucratic, but it sent a very clear signal. They established these delegation subcommittees. And they delivered some incredibly positive policies, it's got to be said. You know, I mean, you know, they had a free phone care service. Um, they had uh, uh, very, very low priced at school meals. During the minor strike, they found a way of feeding the miners' kids using council resources to do that, doing it in a way that was legal that the Tories couldn't stop them from doing. He also refused to pay the police uh, uh, services that were coming in from outside to police the minor strike. He refused to to pay them and said, you know, that's the matter, that's a national decision. I mean, and if the Home Office are instructing uh, the police forces from other areas to come into our county, it's up to them to pay. We ain't paying. And, you know, so things like that. And it was just wonderful to behold, you know. And, and you know, he would have been a great MP and... Uh, Unfortunately, he got um, sidelined. I mean, he was, uh, if like in a way, you know, he was a sort of uh, the Jeremy Corbyn equivalent in local government because he was utterly demonised, traduced, and he got uh, selected to stand a few seats. Actually, very bad luck. He got selected to to fight a very safe seat ahead of the nineteen eighty three election, but unfortunately, the boundary changes uh, literally a few months before the election took place, and it, it created a, um, basically. A, a couple of um, uh, uh, marginal seats that he could choose from. So he, anyway, he stood in what was the best prospect, but it was such a catastrophic year for us in 83, if I say yours, keep saying yours, obviously for the Labour Party, I was a member obviously then, uh, that he lost out. And and um, he then got uh, by far and away the most nominations because he originated from Manchester. And um, he got by far and away the most nominations, uh, but then there was a kind of a, a dirty tricks whispering campaign uh, against him by the you know the powers that be inside the Labour Party and and they kind of made sure he didn't get the the nomination it's a real tragedy so he never had the opportunity to you know perform on the national stage but he would have been a colossus he really would but as I say his legacy as, as local government is, is legendary in Derbyshire you know people still talk about him even though it's 20 odd years 30 years of thinking about it can't I'm getting old since Bucky stepped down as as leader and um you know you know, where are the David Bookbinders of today? You know, where are the Ken Livingstons in local government? Where are the Ted Knights? You know, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's such a tragedy. I mean, local governments have so much potential. And yet uh, those new Labour years really hollowed it out. And, um, you know, we became very managerial. And uh, you know, as I say, the days of municipal socialism are just kind of long, long gone. I mean, there's another 
great example of municipal association just up the road again from where I live in Clay Cross and uh, where the, a couple of the Skinner brothers were, were very involved, uh, David and, uh, and Graham were, uh, were councillors on there. And they, they refused to implement the, the so-called fair rent policy in 1972. They got barred from office and bankrupted. Uh, then a new, uh, the elected, uh, they all kicked out, and then a new group of councillors uh, had to be elected. They again refused to implement the Tory policy. But it wasn't just the rent policy that they were uh, refusing to implement because they wanted to keep council rents uh, lower than what the Tories were under Ted Heath saying that they should increase it by. But they were doing some amazingly groundbreaking stuff. I mean, back in 1970, 71, 72, they were providing free TV licenses for pensioners living in the uh, Claycross area. I mean, I know this is available now. One of the good things that New Labour did when they came into government in 1997, but they were well ahead of the time. They were doing all those kind, all those kind of things. And when Thatcher, she got the super K, uh, Margaret Thatcher milk snatcher when she was education secretary and she she took the milk, the free milk away from the kids. They found a way of continuing to provide, you know, the free milk for the kids. So they were just amazing. And so those they were iconic. They were really inspiring uh, days, to be honest with you. And that was the kind of thing I suppose that influenced me, too, as well as my mum and dad those sorts of um, that stands, if you like, that, that you know, that I always saw the Labour Party as, as, as being the party, you know, that stood up for the underdog, that, that, that actually did take on authority, was the insurgent party. How wrong was I in reality? Well, certainly in terms of the, uh, at the parliamentary level and, and things, as we know, I've just gone from bad to worse as far as the Labour Party is concerned, which is an absolute tragedy. I consider myself a Labour man, really, you know, and I still often talk about us and we when I'm referring to you know, past uh, struggles in that sense. But of course, I'm no longer a member of the party. And, and uh, I think yeah, our duty really is to, is to destroy the Labour Party and, and start yeah. again. Yeah, it's a hard habit to break. Um, so who were the villains? Oh, well, obviously, Margaret Thatcher was clearly uh, a villain. <laughs> you know, I mean, she makes my blood boil even now when I see her, uh, one of the few people that really has a, a sort of like a visceral effect on, on on me uh so yeah definitely uh, her um but uh, but there were a number of them the likes of uh, you know of keith joseph and frankly all the tories i mean i got no time obviously for for any of them really but but she was the person that uh, that 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 turned the ship around really and uh, had a profound impact on not just britain but the entire entire world i mean her and uh, and then the unhappy axis of evil that, that came about when uh, ronald reagan got elected and uh, you know, implementing neoliberalism, uh, externalization, uh, privatization, etc., that uh, has had such a profound impact and, and led to, you know, huge suffering and poverty and war, of course, around the world and all those jobs that were destroyed. Uh, those good quality. I mean, you know, I mean, not, we, I mean, it wasn't perfect. I mean, you know, people are like wage slaves, but you could, I mean, I left school at 15 in in Derby, I, uh, I mean, I more or less left at 14 because I played truant for most of it. I shouldn't say this as, a, as a, you're a, a teacher, aren't you? But anyway, I played truant for most of the last year. I used to turn up to play for the school team and then they, they dropped me from the school team for not coming to, for not going to school. So uh, that sort of uh, rained on my parade there. But um, you could actually get a job. I mean, I mean, I got the job very, very quickly. I mean, I left school. I got a job, I think, the following week. I trained for a while as an apprentice mechanical engineer. I couldn't get on with life in a factory and then went into the building trade, went back into a factory for a bit and then went back into the into the building trade. But I did actually get a train. There was about 120,000 people working in manufacturing in Derby when I left school. And it's a, you know, it's a much smaller city then, uh, population-wise. And uh, the vast majority of those jobs have gone. I mean, many of those factories have just been raised to the ground. And places like uh, Selenese, Courtauld, as it became, now 20,000 people oh, yeah. working in, doesn't oh, yeah. exist. The railway employed a similar number. They've 
they've got a couple of thousand now. Rolls Royce employed thirty-five thousand. They've only got about twelve thousand people. It's still a big employer, but only twelve thousand. Two thirds of those jobs have gone, and many, many, many others have gone. And so, you know, working-class people, and this was true all over the country, you know, could look forward to a better life than their parents. They had the chance that they knew. I mean, irrespective of their background, really, if you like, or now whether they do well or not at school, or whether they went to the university or not. They could look forward to a good, decent standard of living and an improving standard of living. They could look forward to aspiring to buy their own home. They could, and if they didn't want to do that, they, they, you know, there was the opportunity to get a council house. I mean, and, uh, you know, these days are gone. It's a tragedy, really. Now, I look around, you know, look at my kids and, you know, the opportunities available to them compared to what were available to, to me. I mean, they're just nowhere near, you know. And people well, go, you yeah. about the, the 1970s. I'd say I'd love to go back to the 1970s. I mean, there's a lot wrong with it. But there was a lot right with it too, actually. And I think if you could iron out the, you know, the things that were wrong and, and, and bottle the, you know, the positive aspects of the 1970s, that, that would be a, a, the kind of society that I would like to live in. Yeah, I was a child of the Thatcher years, unfortunately, and I left school yeah. in 1986. And uh, because of the high unemployment levels at the time, we were just carted straight onto the YTS scheme, which I don't know if many of our listeners will remember, the youth training scheme where you weren't £27.50 for a week's work. Um, and ironically, I went to work for our local Tory MP. <laughs> <laughs> God, how did that happen? <laughs> uh, quite by accident I wanted to be a travel agent I wanted oh, to go yeah. work abroad I wanted to be an overseas hotel rep and, and all the yeah. rest of it but because I was only 16 I was too young to do any of that yeah. um, so they stuck me on this YTS scheme and I ended up doing administration um, I had yeah. to go to college once a week and um, so I ended up doing admin for the, the local Tory MP so I was doing all his case notes and his letters and things like that so Tragic. yeah Interesting. So you, you've had a journey, though, uh, Sean, yourself then from uh, would be travel agent for a Tory MP to a, a teacher and a, a trade union representative. I and mean, what, what's, what's your journey to where we are today? Oh, crikey. Well, yeah, I, d I did manage to get my job as an overseas holiday rep and I did that for four years. Um, met my husband who was in the RAF serving over in Cyprus that's where I worked I worked there for a few years I went to Athens I worked in Tunisia Corfu so yeah I had great times great stories to tell um probably not some stories that are worth telling on here I'll tell you over a drink sometime yeah. <laughs> um but yeah we had yeah it was great times um and then when I came home, I continued working in the travel industry for a few years, went into recruitment, um, opened my own business and then got married, had children and decided that I needed a stable career because my husband was a contractor. Um, so um, I decided that was the time I, I went to I went back to college. Uh, well, I never went to college. I left school with a handful of CSEs at the time. Um, so I went to college, did an access course with two babies in they had a creche which was great so the kids would go in the creche I could go in and do my studying uh, did my access course over nine months and then got into the local university at Manchester Metropolitan uh, and did a four-year primary education degree there did um, you uh, have to pay for it back then or was yes, it yes yeah because it was only in 2000 that I did it so I was oh, I 30 see. when I went to uni oh. um, and uh, a new so, labour yes, legacy a new yes, labour so legacy still, I still have the debt. All my all my um, student loan went to pay for childcare. Yeah. Um, so yes, I've still got about eighteen or nineteen thousand pounds worth of debt. But hey ho, 
There yeah. you go. I think we might go to uh, some questions now. Um, as we've been talking particularly about local council, Chris, and your experience in that area, Phil Wagstaff's asked a question. He says he's standing in the county elections as an independent socialist and would appreciate some advice on countering the argument that they have to keep within the heavily reduced council funding. So councils at the moment are all, you know, they, they've got no money, have they? I mean, they, no. they've government have, have heavily reduced the funding that councils have and um, so how how can they how can councils produce the council housing stock for example that they need and and things like that yeah so i mean there's, well there is a lot that the lo that local government can do ironically made possible by the tories and county councils aren't directly responsible for housing but interestingly the recent uh, labor administration on uh, derbyshire county council sadly lost at the last uh, county council uh, elections they were uh, they were hey i had a plan to create a housing um, a development uh, company and they were going to start building houses for uh, for key workers and um, it got scrapped that plan did when the tories came into office at the last county election which was a tragedy but in terms of the restrictions on spending and you know county councils do provide uh, really important services like social care and uh, education etc uh, there is the opportunity to introduce a registrative council tax because i think it was back in 2012 uh, eric pickles that well-known socialist he piloted through a piece of legislation the local government finance act which gave local authorities the ability to introduce differential discounts and so essentially that means that you can have a, a big increase across the piece but then discount it back for the vast majority of the population that live in your county council or local borough area uh, and you can do that to the extent where you can essentially freeze maybe in certain circumstances depending on how many properties you've got in the higher bands reduce the council tax to the vast majority of people and at a stroke by doing that you can uh, stop the Tory cuts uh, and not just you know make up for the cuts that have been made but you can actually build in some room for growth now, the flip side of that is that you have to then go to a referendum with the local people. Uh, was the cost of that. And no, no Labour group. I was in discussions when I was an MP uh, with a number of local authorities who were considering it, but all of them backed off in the end. Uh, they were saying that they wanted the Labour Party in the House of Commons, the Labour leadership, to uh, tell them to do it or tell them it was OK to do it. I mean, my response was why do you need them to it's the law of the land you've got the power in your hands it's not nothing to do with the front bench of the uh, labor party in the house of commons so you have to go to a, a referendum uh if you decide that you're going to to do something like that and you'd have to get then the endorsement from from the people in the area that you uh, represent in the county area or in the the borough area that you represent uh, but i think that's a campaign that you could win where you'd be going to the people and saying, well, look, this is where we are. It's not an ideal situation. We would sooner not have, be having to find these sort of clever ways of raising the finance that we need. But you know that our services are under are under uh, the cost from the cuts that the governments have made. We're going to ask the uh, the rich people in the borough or in Phil Stace in, in the county to shoulder the burden. And we're going to reduce the council tax or certainly freeze it for everybody else, so the vast majority of the rest of the uh, the public. And uh, we also would like your view, you could say, 
or where you think we should use the additional resources that we'll be able to generate, where should the priority be? Should it be on childcare? Should it be on uh, social care or an education or a combination of those things? Or on legislative, you know, I mean, a range of different things. You can have a menu, a suite of things in terms of uh, consulting with people. And I think that's a way of, of really engaging with people because a lot of people don't participate in, uh, in local uh, elections. But I think, you know, this is a way, I think, of really, uh, you know, reaching out to the people and, and making people feel that their voice counts, their voice is important, that they've got some influence uh, over uh, uh, the local decisions that affect their life. And, you know, would I think help with a whole kind of political consciousness uh, raising in that sense? Because if you speak to a lot of people, there'll, there'll be absolutely no idea about what local authorities or which local authority does what, what it is they're responsible for. And I think, um, you know, this is quite an important way of um, you know of increasing people's political education. If you go back and mention you know the great titans of the of local government uh, back in the seventies and eighties, and people like uh, Ted Knight, who was the leader of, of Lambeth Council, they mobilised their whole borough. I mean, there are thousands of people on the street who were with them. Look at what they did in Liverpool. I know Kinnock, Neil Kinnock, when he became the leader, was obsessed with uh, with expelling people who were associated with the uh, with the militant uh, tendency that. You know, dominated in Liverpool and a few other areas around the, the country. But, you know, they absolutely mobilised and kept winning elections despite all of the uh, uh, the brickbats that were being thrown at them. And they built thousands of council houses, you know, the improved services. When Derek Hatton was the um, the chair, I think he was, of the of the fire and rescue uh, service in in Liverpool, um, he um, he made all of the firefighters uh, uh, whole-time whole firefighters. I mean, they, they got rid of the whole kind of retained fire. So, you know, where they are part time firefighters and, uh, you know, really invested in the fire service. And these were the things that they kind of did. Of course, they never got any credit for that in the mainstream media for the wonderful things that they, that they did do. They were just portrayed as extremists and all the rest of it. But the point was they kept winning elections and, and because they really mobilized the community, they, they really kind of interacted with the people. And that's, a, that's what politics should be about. And I think there's an opportunity to, to do that. So that's what I'll be recommending. Obviously, in order to be able to pull that off, you need to win a majority. Um, but that doesn't stop you, though. I mean, I don't know. I suspect Phil's standing in a part of the country where it's unlikely that people of his political persuasion will form a majority uh, group on the authority. But uh, nevertheless, he, 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 either way, if Phil were to get on or indeed in his election campaign, these are the things I think we should be putting to people because a lot of people are just simply unaware of what is possible. And so I would highly recommend that, that you know that people do look at that progressive council tax idea. And as far as people standing in uh, in local authorities, borough councils that are responsible for housing, the cap has been lifted on the housing revenue account now. There's no real impediment to building council houses. I mean, they, they are subject to right to buy. Uh, after uh, 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 40 years, you get the full uh, discount, but it's obviously some down, time down the track. The first, I mean, apartments are to build and there is some discount that starts to kick in after 15 years. Um, but there's also ways in which through setting up arms length uh, um, council run companies you can actually build houses which are outside the the, the you know the right to buy uh, provision so the things like that can be you've got to be kind of innovative i think and, and look at ways of uh, of using the system uh, and using the levers at your disposal i, I coined a phrase when i was leader of the council innovative pragmatism we didn't necessarily agree with what new labor government was doing and we used to try and you know bend the sort of uh, diktats from on high to reflect our local priorities. And uh, that's the sort of thing I think, you know, I would like to see local councillors doing again today. 
Chris, you know, you talk about the raising of the council tax revenue. Um, for example, in my area, there's um, a lot of elderly people, a lot of retired people that live where I live. And the, so their houses are probably quite, they've, they've got, obviously since they bought them many, many years ago, 40, 50 years ago, they might have paid, you know, 10 grand for them, but or even less in them days. Um, but some of the houses around here are going for like half a million now, which is ridiculous. Mm. Um, so, so, but those pensioners can't afford to pay. So if, if the council tax was based on a house that's now worth half a million pounds, they actually couldn't afford to pay any more council tax. They are actually quite hard up. Um, you know, well, the two, uh, two things I'd say to that. How would you deal with that? Well, two things I'd say to that. First of all, uh, <clears throat> it's in a way it's irrelevant how much the, the house is valued today. It's what it was valued at in, I think it was 1991. There's not been a, a council tax revaluation since then um the likelihood is that the big mansions the big properties properties worth that kind of money in, in your neck of the woods would probably be in the higher council tax bounds. oh they're only semis and bungalows well they may, well well as a, well they will yeah. depend well as i say then their, their present value is, is not relevant then in that sense so you need to kind of look back well, what, what band you know what was the valuation in, uh, in back in 1991 because it, you know they go from bands a to h and um, so I suspect most of those kind of semi-detached properties that you talk about, although they might be worth the kind of sort of money that you're just mentioning there, might still probably only be in band C or band D. So they would fall yeah, outside I mean, of the provisions of that. But but anybody who was in a in in a say a band E D uh, sorry band E F G or H property where there perhaps would be a you know a big increase, um, if if they were asset rich but cash poor, the local authority could provide a much more generous council tax support scheme. I mean, bear in mind the council tax um, uh, support scheme used to be uh, a national social security benefit, but the Tories, or the coalition actually, localised it uh, and uh, uh, and made it a, a cash limited um, pot of money for local authorities. So they basically said, "Well, local authorities, you're going to take responsibility for this now. You haven't. We're not going to give you the same. Well, they didn't say it quite this, but basically what happened was they didn't give them the resources to fully fund it, uh, and those resources have been getting." smaller over the years and uh, so consequently now there are many people who would have previously qualified for a 100% council tax benefit 100% council tax rebate are now being asked to make a contribution uh, in many local authority areas you know 10 or 20 percent which is just absurd I mean and so a lot of people are just simply falling behind with their uh, council tax I mean there is the provision to make hardship payments and local authorities do do that uh, make a hardship award to residents who are in that category but because, as I've said, the, the, the money that is available is limited, is cash limited, and there are more and more people who are strapped for cash, so the demands on it are greater, the, the pot is getting smaller, so inevitably some people fall through the, the cracks. It's an absolutely appalling, crazy system. Mm. Uh, and, of course, the stress that that causes people who are in that situation. I mean, I used to be a welfare ICE officer, you know, and we, you know, we used to do take-up campaigns to encourage people you have to claim what, what, what was rightfully theirs. I'm a very big supporter of universal benefits. I don't like means-tested benefits because there's a massive stigma attached with them. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of people that, you know, we used to work with, I used to work with, who were very reluctant to claim what was rightfully theirs. And uh, you get this situation uh, with, with this sort of council tax money, particularly now, you know, people say, well, you've got to have to, you'll have to apply for a hardship payment. I mean, people are very proud and understandably so, and particularly of a certain generation, 
and they've got to go cap in hand. You know, I mean, it's just a disgraceful system. It is disgusting. And, yeah. uh, you know, we so so just to answer your point, I mean, that can be addressed through having a much more general because you can raise more resources. So you can actually, you know, deal with everybody, have a much more generous council tax benefit, uh, sorry, council tax support scheme across the piece for those people who've, who are already falling through through the gaps. But anybody who would be dragged in through through the big increase because they're living in a big house who, who couldn't afford to pay could be covered through through a more generous council tax support scheme. So there's no real problem about that. Um, you know, that, that could be addressed and indeed would have to be addressed, I think, in order to deal yeah. with the problem that you've identified there. Okay, we're going to go for a, a go to a question now that came in from Twitter. And um, this question is about proportional representation. Um, and a lot of people have been talking about proportional representation in, in the last few months. And the question says, quite simply, campaign for proportional representation. As a country, the population largely favours progressive economic policy, yet under first past the post, we are continuously saddled with governments that enact right-wing economic policies. Yes, a very good point. I mean, and you kind of look on the continent, and I know they've got their uh, problems, but they've tended to have a, a you know a more kind of progressive uh, social policy in relation to you know things like housing, social security, and pensions, etc. Than, than we have, and uh, they all, or the vast majority anyway, uh, have one, uh, some form of proportional representation. And you know, we see this. I mean, they talk about the Labour Party, for example, being a broad church. I mean, I think it was Ian Lavery, actually, was a formerly the um, chair of the Labour Party, said he thinks the church is too broad. I think he had to kind of row back a little bit from that. But he was absolutely right. It is too too broad. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, dominated by Tories. I mean, at the end yeah. of the day, I mean, these it's God knows how. But these people seem to float to the top and get, if you can call being in Parliament the top, uh, and get into Parliament. I mean, they're totally unrepresentative, the uh, people on the Labour benches. And of course, the Tories. Well, we know that anyway. Um and so, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think we should be pushing for proportional representation. Ironically, I was always against proportional representation. And in fact, I campaigned when there was a... Chris, uh, the... for those of us that are not sure about the difference between PR and FPTP, can you just explain the difference between the yeah, two? Yeah, well, I mean, well, that's the post, essentially, is winner takes all. So, I mean, for example, when I won my seat in uh, first time around in 2010, it was a sort of a three-horse race between myself, the Tories and the Liberals. Liberals came third and obviously Tory second, and there's a few other uh, odds and sods of uh, independent parties and so on who stood. But I got in, I think, with just over 30% of the of the vote. And, uh, you know, we see across the country, I mean, Thatcher won a, a landslide majority uh, across the country in 1983 and in 1987. And she won a, with, a, with a smaller proportion of the vote than she achieved in, in 1979. And that was because the Social Democratic Party, which was a breakaway group, that was a uh, founder from right-wing Labour MPs who didn't like the democratic reforms that Tony Benn was pushing through back uh, uh, back in the day. Uh, and they, I think their, their task was set out really to stop a socialist government coming to power. And they succeeded in that because they split the Labour the Labour vote and, and Thatcher benefited from that. So that's the thing about first past the post, winner win takes all. It's the same system in the United States of America. And that's why you know their system is completely broken. You've got two corporate uh, political parties in the Democrats and the Republicans, and we've got two corporate, you know, corporate capitalist parties here, essentially, the Labour Party and the uh, and the Tory Party, even though the Labour Party is supposedly the party of the organised working classes, the trade unions, many of them still affiliated to it. That's throwing good money after bad. Proportional representation is a range of different um, systems of proportional representation. You can have a list system where it's literally strictly based on whatever national percentage share of the vote that you get. 
determines how many seats you get in Parliament. That puts then a lot of power at the centre, though, in terms of you know who the of a political party that is, who they want to be on the list, as it were. And obviously, the higher the list you are, uh, the greater chance you are you have of getting elected. And so, uh, you know, I think that 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 uh, tends away, you know, away from democratic accountability, I think, at a local level. But I think a hybrid system is, is possible. And we've got these hybrid systems operating already. I mean, the Scottish Parliament is elected on a hybrid system where they have a list system as well, but they've kept the constituency link as well. You kind of have bigger constituencies. So some people are elected uh, based on, you know, the vote that they get. And that's a kind of winner takes all uh, arrangement. Um, and uh, and some are elected off off a list. Now you can also have a kind of proportional system for a each constituency. So you know, it's a, in a way, it's a bit like the alternative vote system that we that we rejected uh, in the referendum uh, that was pushed for when the coalition was established and the Liberals wanted this. And we remember we had that 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 that, uh, that vote uh, and it was uh, it was rejected. Um, where you know you can't get elected until you have at least fifty percent of the votes in that uh, in that constituency. So there's a range of different methods uh, available. But I favour myself this is my only personal opinion. I mean, I think any proportional representation is is probably better than what the system we've currently got. Although I would I would caution against the uh, the uh, list system. But but my my preference would be uh, that that hybrid because I think that enables you to keep that 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 link, but also um, you know, make sure that every vote counts. When I was going around the country on what we call the Democracy Roadshow, trying to garner support for uh, greater democratisation of the Labour Party, making MPs accountable, giving members the right to, uh, you know, determine policy and a whole host of other democratic reforms that we wanted to bring about in order to then go on and be able to democratise uh, society. But you know, in a lot of those uh, constituencies I went to, there were real safe Tory seats and people were quite demoralised because they knew that whatever they did, although I used to say, look, there are no unwinnable seats now because Labour was on the crest of a wave, if you remember, when just after Jeremy got uh, uh, the su support that he did in that 2017 general election, then it all went wrong, as we know. Um, but there was no unwinnable seats. You know, we could win anywhere now. There's massive support for the sort of policy agenda that we are putting forward. Uh, there was that famous case where Giles Brandreth went round looking for secret socialists for the uh, daily politics in uh, Guildford, I think it was, the capital of the home counties. And, you know, the vast majority of people were very supportive of the, the, the policies of Jeremy uh, Corbyn. But in reality, people felt that it's pointless campaigning. We want to really campaign in our own local area, but it's pointless doing it. Now, if you had a system like I'm talking about, where you had a, a, had a hybrid system, or indeed if you went for the list system, that would motivate people to get out and campaign because every single vote would matter because the national share of the vote would make a difference in terms of the proportion of seats that you got in Parliament, as well as obviously the, you know, the local vote. So I think it's a great way of encouraging people to engage in, in politics too, as a part of, you know, real part of the kind of whole thing I have about, you know, raising uh, political consciousness and engagement. I think uh, proportional representation would certainly go a long way to helping us to, to certainly do that. And the point is well made actually about the kind of right-wing economic agenda that is being pursued. I mean, uh, and um, a bit like, as I was saying, you know, with the Giles Brandreth uh, secret socialist uh, exercise that he did. I mean, people actually support a progressive socialist uh, policy agenda, but are, are saddled with with two political, well, three really, if you take the Liberal Democrats into account in this country anyway, uh, political parties, uh, you know, are bought into kind of neoliberalism. They're bought into this kind of right-wing uh, agenda, brought into this kind of, you know, trickle-down economics, and it don't work.
We know it doesn't work. 14 million people are living in poverty. I mean, millions of people are in precarious employment. You know, there's a massive housing crisis. People sleeping in shop doorways in every town and city. I mean, it's an absolute disgrace when we've got the fifth biggest economy in the world. So the politics is broken. <clears throat> the system's broken. And we need to really argue for It's a root and branch reform that we need. We need a kind of reform of our electoral system. Absolutely. We need a reform of uh, our sort of institutions, public institutions. They're not fit for... For purpose, we need to kick out the privateers, uh, making a killing, using our public services as a cash cow. I mean, Jack Straw said ahead of the 1997 election, he was a shadow um, home uh, secretary, I think, at that time, that, you know, we wouldn't pursue uh, the privatisation of prisons agenda. Then accelerated it when he got into office. I mean, it's an absolute scandal that people like they do in the States are making money. Out of the judicial system, about out of the out of the penal system in this country. I mean, frankly, I'd shut the prisons anyway because they don't really serve a useful purpose. I don't think we should be sending people to prison anyway. I mean, I think you know there are other ways of, of dealing. We're not saying you kind of just let people loose who are a danger to the public, but uh, the vast majority of people in prison uh, are, are not a danger to the public. So that deals with that one. Um, but I think people, you know, very often it's 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 a matter of the, you know the support and the care, the health care that, that is needed for for people, and uh, that's what we should be focusing on. And I actually remember doing some research for for a book that I con for a book that I contributed to uh, back in 2017, uh, and this was kind of uh, looking at uh, you know what was possible under a Jeremy Corbyn government. And I was asked to look at uh, the criminal justice system, and uh, it, just in my research for that book, looking at how much we spend as a country on, you know, sending kids to prison, sending adults to prison. I mean, you know, it's about a quarter, I can't remember the precise figures off the top of my head now, but it's about a quarter of a million quid for, for, for some um, uh, uh, per year. I'm sure it was of that order. It was a substantial six-figure sum. It's uh, disgusting. When we could be investing that money into those yeah. into those kids. Um, you know, it, they come. A lot of them come from troubled backgrounds, um, instability, mental health problems. You know, that quarter of a million pounds could get them back on the right path and set them up for the rest of their lives. It's just again, it's just the system is so broken. It's just not working. We should be investing. We should be eradicating poverty, eradicating the housing crisis, reducing the working week. Investing in education, you know, giving people a stake in society, giving people, you know, the confidence uh, and the security that a country that has the fifth biggest economy in the world should be providing to its people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, going on from the proportional representation, I was thinking about something really radical, Chris. What about smashing up the system and starting again? You know, what about devolving government to, um, you know, counties or um, having citizens' assemblies even? What's your thoughts on that? Oh, uh, we absolutely should. I mean, when I was a councillor, I was very involved in arguing for, for devolving uh, powers. I mean, and I used to really irritate me having to go cap in hand to some anonymous minister or worse, uh, some anonymous civil servant who, you know, you know eaten educated probably. And uh, I'm being a bit prejudiced now, but that was my experience. Of eaten well, educated, public, public school educated anyway. And, um, and then off to Oxbridge and then into the civil service telling me about what was, you know, required for Derby. What the bloody hell did they know about Derby? We know what the situation was in Derby. We had a finger on the pulse. We were kind of working with people on the ground at the local level and you know the sort of things that we wanted to do having to go cap in hand all the time was just really irksome and i remember when i was um when i when when um ed Miliband sacked me from the front bench for being too supportive of the fire brigade union in their dispute 
uh, over uh, pensions. So I uh, managed to get on to the uh, local government, uh, uh, communities and local government select committee, and we did a we did a report on um, uh, devolve, fiscal devolution, actually. And uh, as part of the study, we we, we looked at uh, example in 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 the in the French model, and we went over and uh, to I think it was Lyon. And, uh, and looked at the sort of model that, that they've got there. They were quite embarrassed, actually, when we spoke to some of their representatives because they felt they were overly centralised. I said, my God, mate, it's like Nirvana. What you've got it's like would be like Nirvana to us because they had so much discretion, so much power to be able to, to do things um, without having to go to the government to get permission for it. I remember when we were looking to radically transform our public transport in, in Derby. And we, we, we were looking to draw down something called the Transport Innovation Funding uh, that uh, the new Labour government had put in place. And the quid pro quo for that was that we would have had to have introduced some form of congestion charging, which we modelled uh, to not apply to city residents and to only apply at uh, peak uh, times. Um, but we were told by these um, civil servants when they came down with Rosie Winterday, who was the Transport Secretary at the time, that... Uh, because I wanted to put, tra I wanted to have trams, and we got Bombardier in Derby that kind of build trams. I wanted to have a trams in Derby, you know. To anyway, they were saying, no, no, they were, that's not that doesn't meet our value for, for value for money test, and uh, it was absurd. And and the thing which really that really kind of was sort of took the took the biscuit was when they were telling me how long it was going to take before that we could access the funding, and uh, I was at cross purposes with them because I was saying I appreciate you know take a number of years to, to kind of conclude this, and I was saying to you know to get the whole thing in place. We've got some great plans to which I won't bore you with the details of now. Very significant plans that didn't unfortunately include um, it didn't include uh, trams. But then they were telling me it's going to take four years to do all of the uh, uh, feasibility uh, from their perspective. I mean, just crazy, you know. Whereas in Montpellier, the mayor decided around about the time that we were looking at that, that uh, they wanted to put trams. The reason I know this, because I was talking to the guys at Bombardier and they, they supplied the, the kit for him. He'd done it within four years. I mean, the whole thing was just up and done and running. I mean, and, and he'd been able to issue a bond, a local government bond to raise the finance for it with no uh, question of him having to get that sign off, signed off by central government. Whereas here, it's very much a parent-child relationship and uh, and that's wrong and that 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 needs to be changed so yeah um going back to our chat neil aldridge asks um how do party politics translate into council practice when your party isn't in power great question neil well i mean i think what you do i mean i don't know what you think on this uh, sean is that um, when you're not in power you've got a real opportunity then to uh, embarrass the administration to put forward uh, you know a proposition that uh, or propositions policies as it were like this redistributive council tax and and the, you know the um, council house building program that i mentioned uh, you could really embarrass the administration and um, and i think the important thing i was always very very strongly of the view that as elected councillors you should be kind of elected community champions and uh, not be spokespeople for the council which unfortunately many many councils end up becoming and i used to when i was leader of the council i had a banned phrase so any cabinet member couldn't refer to the department that they were running as my department it, it's not your department you know and, and, and we're not here me, me even as the leader later uh, uh, even here as the leader of the um of the council i'm not here to be a spokesperson for the council i'm here to be a spokesperson for the people that's elected us 
and for the party. Because the bureaucracy doesn't need us. The bureaucracy would carry on quite nicely without us. So I think that uh, um, uh, gives you an opportunity. But I think um, if behind the question was, should party politics you know, be a feature of uh, local government? So I think it's an inevitability in a way that in order to get things done, you need to get a majority. And so, you know, you've got to get people on side. I mean, it always amuses me when, when, when you see these local authorities referred to as being run by the independents, what is it like, or an independent group, well, you know, they are actually agreeing on a sort of a platform, as it were. And if you don't do that, if you, if you, if you are unable to reach a majority, then the, you know, the bureaucrats just will run rings around you and you, you don't really get through the sort of um, agenda that you you know, most people I'd like to think anyway, who are interested in standing, you know, want to, you know, try and make a difference, really. Uh, and so but as a I, movement, as a movement, yeah. we, mm. you know, we've got we've got people on the ground now. If if we know what's going on, we know what kind of policies we want to put forward. We can embarrass them, can't we? We can oh, embarrass the yeah. council leaders by saying, yeah. look, we know you can do this. This is how you can do it. Um, you know, we can lobby them. We can have meetings with our councillors. Um, we can demonstrate. We can protest at the town hall. I've done it myself as a trade union rep, you know, against uh, all the yeah. academy schools that they were opening up in our area. Um, you know, we, we had a, I called a, a big meeting outside and really embarrassed the council leader. Um, and um, yeah it's easily done and i think on a local level it's easier yeah no i agree i mean and i think it's uh, so important to be those elected you know community champions uh, and even if you're not elected you know if you're just the kind of candidate as it were and uh potential prospective candidate to you know, be that spokesperson for local people and encourage people you know to uh, put their views forward and uh and to, as I say, be be the voice of the people in the in the council, not not the other way around. And and I, what I would also recommend people do if they're interested in, in being active and getting involved is is get hold of a book called Rules for Radicals, because that talks about the sort of tactics that you can employ in actually you know being an effective uh, campaigner. And uh, and obviously there's a place for demonstrations at, at, at town halls, but I think as Dave Roberts who's uh, on our national committee said to us that the thing about local uh, town halls is they're, they're like fortresses really designed to sort of protect the councillors and the uh, chief officers as it were and so you know uh, he was talking about and I think this is a recommendation within the rules for radicals you kind of you, know, you go to their the councillors you know their place of employment or go to their surgery or go to their to their home obviously not to kind of intimidate them or anyway like thing like that but just sort of Go to places where you know they, they they haven't got that that sort of built-in protection, as it were, that they have at the, the town hall. There's definitely a place for the for the town hall thing as well. But oh, I think you need to use we, all, all yeah. things at your disposal. We we found out what night the obviously the council meet, and uh, we made sure we were there quite early so yeah. they couldn't sneak in through the back no. door, and we collared no, them on the doorstep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, absolutely. <laughs> But but I think as well. I mean, for 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 me, what we need to be doing, uh, Sean, and what we are trying to do, of course, is is obviously build this movement. That's really crucially important. So we, you know, people's political consciousness is is raised about the you know the potential of what's what what can be done. Uh, but also to encourage you know new working class leaders to come through to put themselves forward. I mean, and to you know to get into an elected uh, positions. Because as I keep saying, we need a twin track approach. We need an electoral strategy, yes. But if that's all you're relying on, you're going to be sorely disappointed. You need that social movement as well to actually keep the elected representatives on the straight and narrow, as it were, but also to be their eyes and ears and to, you know, have that real 
important partnership between the elected representative and and and, and, the, and the activists and, and and the people on the ground. Um, Kevin Rathbone says, any more reading recommendations for political socialism? Well, I would all get hold of uh, Tony Benn's um, uh, arguments for uh, democracy. That's uh, definitely uh, worth uh, reading. And uh, another one, I'll give you a great big long list, but uh, another one which is, uh, and that's an old book, but it, I think it still stands. Uh, Reclaiming the State by Bill Mitchell, really important book that, and you know, talking about the, the you know, modern monetary theory and, and, and essentially, as the name implies, how we can reclaim the state and basically make the state work in the interest of the people, work in the interest of the majority, work in the interest of the 99%, because at the moment we've got a system, you know, where it's working in the interest of the 1%, and our representative democracy is working in the interest of corporate capitalist elites, not in the interests of the vast majority. And that's because they are prone to the kind of lobbying tendencies uh, that you see and uh, you know the powerful elites the oligarchs they've got the resources they've got the brass to invest in uh, in these uh, lobbyists and and they obviously use it um, ruthlessly uh, to make sure that they you know, get get their way and uh, that's the sort of thing that we need to be to be challenging because yeah uh, you know, and, if we stand um, together um, we can we can really Anything possible, isn't yeah. it? And um, you know, I'm I'm really pleased to announce that we have around six resist um, candidates standing under the Tusk umbrella um, right. for the local elections, and we have two independent socialists standing down in Norfolk. So you know, that's that's great. I'm absolutely that's brilliant. And Tusk have got well over 300 candidates now. I'm sure we'll get the final uh, count very any day now. Um, but they've got over 300 candidates standing nationwide. So um, I would ask everybody to support your local Tusk candidate. It's the Trade Union Socialist Coalition. Um, find out who's standing and go out and support them um, if you can. Um, and whilst I'm just doing some a bit of housekeeping, um, I just want to remind people that our our RTV goes out on podcast now, so you can listen to it in your car. Um, recommend it to your friends. It goes out on Red Circle, Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, and Radio Public. Wow. Um, so if you're listening to this on the podcast, welcome and thank you very much for listening to us. And uh, please do tune in to our to our next show, um, which hopefully will be some of our candidates that are going to be standing in the local elections. Um, I think next week we've got a few of those candidates coming on to talk to us, um, which will be great. Um, Chris, I want to finish on a positive note. Um, you must have some funny stories from when you were in uh, in Parliament, in the House of Commons. Um, are there any particular funny stories that spring to mind that you can tell us? <laughs> I do like a bit of gossip. Funny stories. That's a that's a, a difficult one actually. To because it was it was mainly kind of uh, miserable actually uh, most of the time that I was uh, I was down. I suppose the uh, it was it was a funny uh, uh, it was a funny er uh, as well as a funny ha ha story where Ian Austin, Lord Austin as he's uh, now known, um, <laughs> scourge of uh, socialists, um, uh, Zionist to the core. Uh, very hostile to Jeremy Corbyn. He, if you remember, interrupted Jeremy when Jeremy was uh, speaking on the, uh, the, the the Chilcot report, uh, you know, about the Iraq war. Um, and anyway, uh, we didn't get on. And, uh, you know, he, I remember him bawling me out, actually. In uh, I'd gone, this was back in the, I think about 2011. And I was in the Parliamentary Labour Party. And Liam Byrne had come in to uh, tell us how we should get behind as a party the the benefit cap 
which I thought was absolutely outrageous. I mean, he started off by saying we shouldn't fight the Tories on, on their territory and then proceeded to say, let's support the benefit gap. It was absolutely absurd. Anyway, I made a very impassioned speech saying that if we are serious about social security reform, we shouldn't be penalising the victims of a Tory policy failure. The housing benefit bill had gone through the roof up to about, I think, 24, 25 billion pounds back then. So I said, uh, we, we, we should be, if we want to do something about that, we should be saying, well, let's bring in rent controls. Let's argue for uh, building new council houses. And let's also remember that it's not just a Tory policy failure. It's our policy failure because we were in government for 13 years and we did bugger all about it. Anyway, made this speech and got a good reaction from a lot of uh, people. And um, various people were coming up to pat me on the back. And I uh, saw Ian Austin, who I'd given some information to because I was shadow fire minister then. And he was very, very uh, complimentary, uh, believe it or not, about me and saying, uh, oh, I'm absolutely marvellous what you've just done and uh, exactly what shadow ministers should be doing. Most of them don't do blah, blah, blah. Anyway, he came over to me. I was expecting a, uh, another kind of like uh, slap on the back. And he was went launched into this kind of tirade uh, uh, about me grandstanding and this, that and the other. And um, we then uh, I walked out one door, he walked out of another in committee room 14. Then we walked down. I turned left at, at the corridor. That's, down the corridors and saying he was coming out the road so the argument started again then angela regal joined in on his side and we had argument carried on all the way down the stairs anyway fast forward to a few years uh back uh, this was back 2017 and i was uh i'd been up to see jeremy in the leader's office and i was uh, walking down he was in norman shore south building and uh as, as you come down you then have to sort of go down and then across this is like this kind of bridge that takes you over to portcullis house and an enclosing, you go through the doors. And I saw him coming in. I thought, oh, bloody hell, this is in Austin. I don't want to speak to him. <laughs> so uh, I kind of, um, and he saw me, and you know, there's a bit of a sad stand up. Anyway, I turned around and walked around and thinking, I hope he's not following my. Anyway, then I could hear his footsteps behind me. I thought, oh, shit, you know. So anyway, I got to the door. I thought, well, I'm going to be an idiot. I'll open the door and I'll hold the door for him. And he wouldn't walk through it. And I said, after you. And he said, no, no, I'm not walking through that. I said, oh, come on, yeah, it's after you. And he said, no, no, no. And I said, look, don't be so ridiculous. You know, walk through the door as a comrade. You're no comrade of mine. He shouts out, spitting out. And then uh, he eventually did go through. And then he started berating me about uh, Ken Livingston and uh, and being uh, an anti-Semite and all this uh, malarkey. Anyway, I told uh, Squawkbox uh, about it. And um, so Squawkbox uh, rang him up for a, uh, for a comment, you see. And he was absolutely bloody furious. And they then rang my office and uh, Lewis answered the phone. And he said, oh, God, 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 it's uh, Ian Austin's on the phone. And uh, anyway, so I was all right, very jolly, and uh, picked up the phone and said, oh, uh, hello, mate, how are you? Oh, mate, mate, I'm no mate. And then, and then he, it was obviously really rankled with him because he said, you called me comrade, and then you did a thing like that to me. So he was really, really pissed off about the fact that, uh, <laughs> that Squawkbox had got hold of his uh, intemperate uh, behaviour. And, uh, yeah, he was he – because was, I was saying, have you spoken to them? And uh, I, uh, I sort of hesitated momentarily because I wasn't sure if, uh, if Steve from Squawkbox had actually spoken to him and told him I'd spoken to him. And then he said, yes, yes, you've, 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 you've spoken to him, haven't you? You've called, off, you've called in the mob. I think, yeah, I was saying, who are you talking about? Not party members, you know. That's it. I mean, so, yeah. 
That's something, yeah. So uh, oh, that's, I thought you were going to tell the story about singing "Celebrate Good Times," but maybe we'll save well, that for another that, time. That's another one. That's another one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we'll save that for another time. Yeah. Chris, I have thoroughly enjoyed tonight's show. Um, it's been great to just kick back, relax, um, ask questions, and just be ourselves for a change, really, yeah. and uh, let people see who we really are. Um, so I want to thank everybody um, in the chat. We've had loads of people in before. Before we go tonight don't forget give us a thumbs up subscribe to the channel and please press on the notification bell so that you don't miss any further episodes chris it's good night from me and it's Over good night from you, you. <laughs> thanks a lot see you thanks, everyone see you Bye. next week good night